Well, hello. Our guest today is a master's student in the Conflict Resolution Program at PSU. Michelle holds several positions at PSU and is deeply involved with helping people who are currently in prison and who have left the prison system. She is extremely knowledgeable about programs and educational opportunities that would allow these people the chance to receive a higher education and better their lives. She's a fantastic human being, and I am happy to have had the experience to hear the progress she is making. Here is my friend, Michelle Harris. So let's talk about Freed Minds. Yeah. So it is a student group at PSU, and it was formed actually last year, I believe. Might have been the year before, before I was involved in it, and it was formerly called um, Justice Impacted students. And so it's students who have either been incarcerated, have a family member that have been incarcerated, or are affected in some way by incarceration. And I came to be involved in it in fall term, like right at the beginning of fall term this year. Um, a friend of mine who I've written some stuff with, we've been working together on things. Um, he was formerly incarcerated. And he had contacted myself and another friend of ours and said, this group is going to be really great, but the people who kind of put it together before us let it kind of go to the wayside. They aren't able to maintain it, whatever it was. And he said, we need three officers to keep it going. It's funded. So some student groups have funding that um, they're able to use for things like events and whatever it is that they're going to do on campus. And he said, it's already funded, but it has to have three officers. We have to follow all these rules, which student groups do um, on campus. And so he's like, I need people to help me with it. And so, of course, both of us were like, sure, whatever, you know, we'll help. So how many people are affected by family members being incarcerated? It's got to be a pretty high percentage, right? It's a really high percentage. Yeah. I mean, it's the United States. So we have the highest amount of incarceration um, in the world. And if you combine, I believe most other, I think it's like 190 countries combined, we still beat them. Well, it's because the prison system is for profit. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of it is. Some of it. Okay. I'll take that back. Some of it is directly for profit, right? So it's a privatized prison, um, which means that it's owned by shareholders and that type of situation. And some, which Oregon is one, are state-run. And what that basically means is that the state then is in charge of what goes in and what comes out money-wise. And so they have to justify that a little more than privatized prisons. Well, and there's an incentive to to prosecute people and put them in prison and keep them in prison, right? Oh, yeah. Because you're making money off people. Yeah. Well, and your careers. Careers are made off of, you know, prosecuting people. Prosecutors make their careers off of how many wins they have. Hmm. Yeah. So if you talk to prosecutors, then you're looking at somebody that's running for like a DA position. You know, you see a lot of the I'm tough on crime. I've had this many convictions. Right. That type of thing. And so that is they're making their careers. Judges are making their careers based on these type of things. And so, yeah, there's well, there's way more incentive than just money. There are things that people should go to prison for. But a lot of the reasons people go to prison are not good reasons. I would agree with that. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, let's talk about, do you know anything about Measure 11? I do. That's a the one, bit. it's it's automatic five years, six months? Yeah. Something like that, five yeah. years, three months? And you, um, it, 
Do you, do you know much about it? A little bit. If, okay. Yeah, you can go into it if okay. you want. Well, no, I was just going to ask you because I don't know the exact details, but basically it came into law, I think, in 94. It yeah. hasn't It hasn't been there for, for very long, but it has ruined countless lives because if you commit some sort of crime that fits under that statute, mm -hmm. you're automatically in prison for five years and eight months. I, I should look it up. Um <laughs> And the so there's a lot of those type of laws in Oregon or period, just period in Oregon throughout the United States. There's a ton of those laws. I mean, in California, you've got three strikes. Yeah. You know, and that's a no matter what the situation is, that third one is your last one. Yeah. And then it's mandatory. Mm -hmm. Mandatory sentences are on the books for laws across the board in the United States, mm -hmm. which makes sense for murder or manslaughter or something like that. But a lot of these are like drug related, like you had a bag of weed or something, right? Uh, yeah. So you have things that there's different classifications of drugs, obviously. Um, and again, it varies state to state. But yeah, things like marijuana, right? We're in a state where it's legal recreationally. Many states are going to that. Um, right now, I know that Congress, there are bills right now they are trying to mandate um, federally for legalization. So that's a really positive thing. But that's going forward, right? And all of the people that are sitting in jail and in prisons right now, though, are not having those convictions overturned. Yeah. Are there people still in prison in Oregon who were convicted of crimes that are no longer legal? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, so there's a system around it. You go into a jail or an institution Right. For one thing. So let's say you're going in on a marijuana charge. Right. And you're there. And the way that things are set up, a lot of times, most of the time, other charges end up getting levied against you. So you may be in um, an institution and there's a fight that breaks out. Right. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you're involved in that fight, you know, can determine if you have another charge, whether or not you're in the same room as that fight can have charges levied against you. So if there's a fight of 10 people, you know, in a common room where you're at, everybody in there might get charges against them. Really? Yeah. Even so you if you're still, not involved? You can still pick up charge. Yeah, because who's watching that? Well, isn't that all filmed on camera that they can evaluate? Who's evaluating it? Huh. That, that's the that's the issue. I mean, prison, our prison systems are systemic. They are set up the, to work the way they work for a reason. To generate money. Yeah. Generate money. But you're generating a labor force as well. In in what way? Because they take the prisoners and then they can... They have them work for corporations for pennies on the dollar. Are you talking about like when they clean up the freeways and stuff? No, I'm talking about corporations. Um, I don't want to name any specific ones, but big corporations that you would definitely know. You could you can look it up. But how? What are they doing for them? They're manufacturing car parts. They're manufacturing things for our US Army. They're manufacturing clothing. They're man yeah, that happens in prisons. In prison? Yes. So this may or may not be true, but Nike could have prisoners in Oregon doing something for them? Absolutely. How is that legal? Uh, because they are there, and so they're consider it's considered a privilege to have a job when you're in an institution, and these corporations then make a deal with whatever's going on, whatever institution uh, is like what board is overseeing that. And they're like, we have these people; they can do this work, and those corporations are like, great, and they get paid pennies on the dollar. They're not paid. They're so not, they're not even paid minimum wage. Oh gosh, no. Yeah, way below minimum wage. Yeah. 
think of the wildfires. So there's a huge issue with like just recently the California wildfires and going into Oregon, those fires were fought by a lot of times there were crews of prisoners that went out and fought in those fires Hmm. and they're trained to do that. And that's their job. And then they get out of prison and they cannot get that job. Because they're felons. Correct. Wow. Yeah. And so they were paid to go risk their lives at very minimum amounts, not what anyone else would be making in that position. Hmm. And it's not really. So one of the things you have to think about is when you're in any kind of an institution, right? It's just like working for a job or something. You only have a certain amount of willpower and say, right? And so being within an institution that now has limited your freedoms and your rights and can at any point levy more things against you that are not really going to be challenged, that you're not getting a secondary, you know, hearing and court date and all of these things. And most of the time you're talking about people who are of lower income, people of color, women. These are people that don't have access to really good attorneys. So when you get sent to prison and you're there, I looked it up and measure Mm -hmm. 11 is five years, 10 months. Mm -hmm. And I've got a list here of all the things, rape, sodomy, kidnapping, assault one, uh, manslaughter, robbery two, kidnapping two, compelling prostitution. There's a huge list. And I love how I like how. uh, So when you say compelling prostitution, um, I'm assuming they're talking about um, traffickers. I don't know what that means, but the 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 point is you you do any of these things and you're automatically convicted for five years, 10 months. And some of them are legit. But I mean, uh, I don't know how you just automatically determine that someone can lose that amount of their life especially when you can't always prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that somebody's guilty of whatever they're being charged with. True. I mean, there's lots of situations. I don't think it's as common anymore, but from a long time ago where they didn't have real evidence and people got prosecuted for things that they didn't do and they spent 30 years in prison and then it comes out that they didn't actually do it. I would propose it's still just as common. You think so? Yeah, we have. uh, So there's a group, the Oregon. um, Oh, there's a group of attorneys that, and it, there's one in Oregon, they're everywhere throughout the United States, and they're literally fighting wrongful convictions. Mm. And we have one here also that is doing that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, I got sidetracked for a second. I want to go back to, <laughs> so w- when you go to prison and they, do they offer these people, do they say, hey, you can make a dollar an hour if you go fight fires or you can make car parts for Ford? Like, do they give them the option? So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's based on things like behavior, what your um, status is. So things such as, you know, are you in general population, which means you're just with everybody that's there. Are you having to be isolated for some reason, right? Um, And honestly, the amount of people who are truly super violent criminals is very low in our institutions. Most of our institutions are filled with people who have made a mistake and they got caught for that mistake, right? Because we've all made mistakes. Um, We, you know, even talking before we began today, you know, thinking back to like my teenage years, right? Um, And I'm, I'm pretty open. So I'm good with talking about it. But like, I absolutely have had a drink as a teenager, got in a car and driven. Mm -hmm. I was lucky. I didn't kill myself or anyone else and I didn't get caught. Mm -hmm. But some people 
don't have that type of luck, right? Some some people, maybe something happened and they were they caused a car accident. I know people who have been in prison for 10 years or were in prison for 10 years based off of that that wrong decision, right? And that can happen, especially when you're younger. Mm -hmm. And then you spend 10 years of your life, if you're lucky, (laughs) just that 10 years, right? Um, And nothing else happens along the way in those 10 years, because typically our prison systems like to move you away from your hometown. So you don't go to prison in Oregon and then just stay really close to where you live. You typically go to a prison, a jail first, right? You go to trial, you're convicted, and then they're going to typically move you further away from where you live. Why? You know, it's a good question. For me, um, I would guess that, again, it's just another piece in that system, right? They're trying to fill those beds because they do, like you said, a lot of prisons are based on filling the beds um, and making that money off of those beds being filled. So you get shuffled around a lot. Um, Higher crimes typically get moved away because they don't want you somewhere where you might know somebody else within that system, right? So things like that. There's a lot of different reasons, but it happens. Okay, so let's break down the system then. You commit a crime, you get prosecuted, you get sent to prison. In Oregon, Mm -hmm. you're saying all the prisons are state-funded. I don't believe we have any private prisons in Oregon. Yeah. So in that situation, taxpayers are paying money for these prisons to exist. Correct. And so you are giving money from each one of your paychecks to provide a place for these people to sleep and eat and all that kind of stuff. Right. And do you think there's any, there there are people at any point where they think it's an actual benefit? I think that the general population has an idea that prison is a reform, okay. right? So if you break it down and, and people can accept, okay, there's a small portion, right, of people who go to prison that are violent, violent offenders and probably should not be released, right? Mm-hmm. And then when we start to think of it, we're like, okay, well, we have these other people, they committed a crime. So now most people in the population have the mindset of they need to be punished for that crime. They need to, you know, make restitution for that crime. They need to learn from that crime. And I think that's where that breakdown happens because people assume that our prison systems, when you're going in there, are then going to help you learn what you did and better yourself so that when you come back out into your community, you're magically a better person. But that's not happening. Well, yeah, and you, but you can't get a job because you're a felon. Right. Not only can you not get a job, but you did not go through most prisons, even in Oregon, um, do not have a system to help prisoners. Yeah. There's not a system of, you know, getting better with whatever's going on with you. There's not a system of training of, you know, now you're going to have these skills and now we're going to make things better. We're going to teach you your finances. We're going to teach you, you know, the things you didn't learn. Because most of the time, people who are convicted for longer sentences are people who are, um, they're generally first generation. They've grown up in neighborhoods that are poorer. They don't have access to things like good attorneys, which is a very big thing. Um, So they end up taking plea deals. Plea deals are a huge thing. Um, So they may not have understood why they did that other than someone telling them you're going to go for 25 years or if you say you did it, you can go for five. 
right? Oh, wow. And so that's what happens. Even our parole system, like, so if you accept a parole plea, right, for something, then you're still going to be paying restitution. You're going to be paying to the courts to supervise you. You're going to be paying to the courts for court costs, all while you're still out on parole even. And once you're out of prison, then you go on to a parole system generally. You don't just get out and you're free. That's not how it works. When you get out of prison, you have to pay money? You pay money for your supervision. How much is it? I It varies depending on what counties you're in, what type of supervision you have. But give me like a general number. Um, like $100 a week, $1,000 a month? I don't know. I mean, I've seen people who have had anything from, you know, $35 a week to a few hundred dollars a month. But you haven't earned anything really when you're in prison. So you and what if you don't out, pay it? Then you go back. That's a violation of your parole. You have to pay your fees and fines. It's not a system it's, created to help people. It's a system created you know. to perpetually put you back in there. Exactly. Well, and then the stuff you always see in movies is like they, people go into prison and then you have to join a gang. And then if things happen, you have to jab somebody with a <laughs> prison shank. Like there's all this stuff you have to do. And then... Um, if you do get out, right, you have all these connections that you made in prison, and then you can't get a real job, and so you have to like go interact with people who are still doing illegal right. stuff. It's just like this perpetual. It is. It's a perpetual system that's meant to keep people in that system. Um, I would say that a lot of what you're seeing in movies is probably a little bit overblown. <laughs> so, really? You know, wild idea there. Um, but a lot of it is, so when you're leaving a system like that, the real threat is going back into your neighborhood even, going back into what you did before you got out. Right. So imagine if you were gone, um, like I know somebody who was gone for 15 years during the height of technology developing. Yeah. And this person, you know, coming out had never used a cell phone, had never used a computer in that sense, didn't know what a Google Doc was, right? Things like that, Gmail, um, all that stuff. And then you come out and you go right back into what neighborhood you grew up in, in the same situation that caused, you know, you to be in that situation to begin with, whatever it is. And then you're with the same people generally that you hung out with. You want to go and you want to see your friends and family, right? That have been out. And realistically, there's not a leg up that's automatically provided in any way, shape or form. It's just standing still in time while time still goes by. And then now you're behind on whatever's gone on while you were gone. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you've seen Shawshank Redemption. Of course. Yeah. It, I mean, that's a pretty extreme case, but um, was his name Brooks? He was in for 50, 60 years. He got out. Mm -hmm. he, he couldn't handle it. He killed himself. He, he yeah. hung himself in his apartment. He wanted to go back to prison. Yeah. There's but, a lot of people that don't know how to live outside of the system. Yeah. yeah. But that's the other disappointing part is that you potentially make a mistake. You get sent in there. You spend five or 10 years or whatever. And then, yeah, like you said... Everything passed you by. You don't know how to interact. You know how to be in prison. So then like. Right. I mean, the systems are just set up for that. There's mm -hmm. like I said, there's not a lot of opportunity. There are a lot of us out in the world, though, that are doing the work that are trying to break that system in every way that we can. And that's where Freed Minds came in um, because we are trying to promote education as a tool.
okay. especially higher education. You know, there's so I can give you statistics on that. Um, that is where my work area is. Um, but realistically, people who have been incarcerated and come out and achieve a bachelor's degree are, I believe it's like 46% less likely to recidivize. Mm -hmm. um, if you achieve a master's degree, it goes down to zero. Zero? Zero. But how many places do, how many places will hire you if you're a felon with a master's degree? It's a lot of making your own way. Hmm. It's a lot of making your own way. And hmm. I know a lot of people who are doing that. That's pretty cool. So the group that, are you in charge of it or are you just a part of it? No, I'm one of the three um, officers. Okay. So I'm a part of the group and I'm also one of the three officers and I have been for this entire year. Okay. Um, we started, like I said, with the three of us at the beginning of fall term. We're now at 15 active members. Okay. So the need is there. And people have found us on campus just from different ways and different sources. Um, part of my work also, I'm working with PSU's Higher Education and Prison Program for my thesis work. So uh, they're my community partner, and I have worked to create a resource department on campus okay. for students. And I'm actually, I work every day with students helping them enroll in school, find their funding. Um, but what what does that consist of? You go to a prison and you say, hey, who wants to get a degree? I will help you. Um, similar. Yeah. So we do have some professors who actually teach in some of our closer by prisons. Um, we have some that teach out at Coffee Creeps, Creek specifically, which is the women's prison here. They, they physically <clears throat> go to? They, yeah. Why do it physically? Why not just get them on a Zoom call or something? They have no technology right now. It seems like that'd be way cheaper. Yes. Again, we're not, <laughs> there's some of us trying to fix the system and then there's a big system not trying to have itself fi fixed. Yeah. How much resistance <laughs> do you experience? A lot. Yeah? Yeah. Why would, <laughs> I know so your thoughts, like, like why? why? Why would they want to stop people from learning? It's a good question. It makes it better for everybody. Yeah. You would think so. Education being a really big key to that. Um, I don't know why, other than, like you stated, um, the systems are in place. And if you start breaking down that system, where are all the bad people going to go, right? Mm -hmm. We have a very good, bad objective in our minds as mm -hmm. a society, as opposed to a restorative, you know, process. And so instead of going through that process, which is longer and requires us to develop things like empathy and compassion, right, and want for people who are coming back into our communities to be welcomed and feel better and do better, you know, we just simply have the mindset of send them away, they did a bad thing, and now we pretend that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just punish them perpetually and dispose of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, it sounds like something that like your grandparents would say. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it needs a different process. And so that's cool that you guys are working towards that to, to figure that out. But it sucks that you're getting resistance against it. I don't know why. I don't know why <laughs> you would not want people to learn and get better and be I mean, part of society. We've had resistance even within the school. So um, really? we held, so as a student group this year, we had an event and it was one of the first on-campus events that has happened since COVID. 
And we actually did it as a hybrid where we had a Zoom feature also for people who weren't able to attend or were out of state or out of the country. And we worked with uh, Big Picture, which is a group that um, maintains different uh, documentary things. Mm -hmm. And so they actually work with Ken Burns' film. It's called College Behind Bars. Cool. Um, It's a fantastic series. It's a four-part series. And it tracks um, the BARD initiative, which is on the East Coast. And we had some of the uh, people from that film who have since been released. One is working actually for the Democratic National Convention. So first fell in to do that. Um, That's a pretty amazing thing. And we had some of them out. And we had DA Mike Schmidt came out to campus. And uh, Senator Dembrow was trying so hard to get there, Um, but he wasn't able to attend because it was in the time that Senate was in session. Mm. And so instead he had sent out um, a very nice statement in support of everything, which was read. And um, one of our professors who I work with through the Higher Education and Prison Program through PSEO, she hosted and we took a, we had a panelist of people for questions and then we did um, show some clips from the college behind bars, but it was a really great event. We had over 130 people that attended. So yeah, it was really nice. Um, We did have the support of our university president, Stephen Percy, which was really, it meant a lot. And we were, you know, as we were planning the event, we were really worried about whether or not we were going to have that support. We did have the support of our student government and lots and lots of our departments, but then we had resistance from a few people. For what? What's their excuse? Um, You know, there's never really a good excuse (laughs) that's ever given. It's just a lot of, well, you know, we're not sure that we want to advertise that we do that or that we have that or that we're doing that. And I can, you know, I can understand it. So if you're in, and PSU is an institution as well, you have to remember, um, it's a state-run college, but it is still an institution. It still has to keep its lights on. It still has to, you know, pay those building fees. It's got to get admissions in. And so if you're out as an admissions team and you're trying to recruit students to come to your college, you know, probably front and foremost, you're not like, hey, come to the college where we have, you know, a lot of convicted felons. But the thing about that mindset is, is that they're already here. (laughs) Like, the convicted felons are already on campus. There's not an identifier, right? So private colleges can ask you, and some still do, a lot of colleges don't, but some can ask you about your criminal record and they can use that to deny you admission. State colleges generally don't do that. PSU definitely doesn't do that. Um, most of our community colleges, you know, PCC and Mount Hood, they don't do anything like that. So it's not something that is identified, right? So if you um, come out of prison and you have a felony record and you choose the path of higher education to better your life, right? Um, it's not something that you're asked with the exception of if you apply for financial aid. Financial aid is done federally through FAFSA. Mm-hmm. There has historically for a long, long time, there's been a question on there. And specifically, that question is um, about felony drug convictions. So it's kind of fast. That in itself is fascinating to me. Um, it's leftover, I'm sure, from the you know war on drugs. Um, how'd that go for everyone? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because nobody asked about on that question. I mean, I filled out FAFSA 
hundreds of times, right? Mm-hmm. And for myself, my daughter, and I'm just like, as you see it, it's just asking specifically about felony drug convictions. It's not asking about felony, you know, um, convictions that are violent. It's not asking any of that. So those students can get funding. It specifically was excluding those convictions. Used those words, felony drug convictions. Correct. Huh. Yeah. So you could kill somebody and they're cool, but if you sold some weed, then we right. don't want you. <laughs> no, we don't want any of that. It's left over, like I said, probably from that war on drugs situation. <laughs> um, the good news is, is that Pell is returning. And what that means is that they have taken that question off of the uh, FAFSA application now. And so there is no longer um, exclusion from Pell grants. So, and that's the portion of your financial aid that you don't have to pay back, right? Because how... No one can pay for college without financial aid unless you have parents or grandparents that are going to do it for you. Right. Everyone has to get financial aid. Pretty much, yeah. We're all out here getting financial aid, um, applying for a bazillion scholarships, looking for money, you know, under the couch cushions, wherever you can find it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, college has gotten so outrageously expensive in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. I just did an event um, about student loan debt. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, what What is the average student loan debt going to PSU? Uh, I believe it's around $30,000. After, after four? After four years. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah. Until you start adding on interest and you ne- realize that you're never realistically paying it off unless you can come up with a big, nice lump sum here and there and start paying yeah. in chunks. Yeah. But yeah. If you keep going with, I mean, my student loan debt is uh, currently $76,000. I have a fantastic solid plan for paying that back. It is called I Will Die First. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where a lot of people are at. Yeah, it's all right. I said that to one of our state senators a couple of weeks ago, and she said, me too. That's that's one of our state senators and her hmm. student loan debt. It used to be okay because you could get a decent job that would help you pay it back. But now having a degree doesn't guarantee you anything. No, it does not. And it's actually more of a requirement um, to, so degrees are becoming more of a requirement for jobs Mm -hmm. and especially in our state and especially in the Portland surrounding area. So we are a very school centric area and very heavy on requiring degrees for jobs. Um, and like I said, I did not, and I don't know if this was earlier, but I was telling you earlier that I didn't grow up in Portland. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Nevada. It's not a very, Vegas specifically, definitely not a school-centric area. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a four-year college there. There's some community colleges, but it's not something that's pushed. Well, that's something that we're going to have to evaluate as time goes on is whether or not you should spend that kind of money and that kind of time to get a piece of paper with a seal on it because there are a lot of positions and a lot of jobs that you can get quickly through a trade school. You could become a plumber or an electrician or work on yeah. hang, hanging sheetrock in houses. Like, well, and PCC has some amazing job training really? and it's funded. So you have to remember even those training programs are things that have to get paid for. Mm-hmm. A lot of them now are FAFSA dependent. So a lot of those trade schools now use your FAFSA to do it, which is great. Um, I think it should be an option, right, if that's what you want to do. PCC, like I said, I know they have some amazing programs for those kind of things. But again, if that FAFSA was already a barrier, and if you're still having to go into debt to get those 
you know, certificates and things like that that are required, our society is just becoming more focused on they want you to have those training certifications, right? Or they want you to have a degree, Mm -hmm. no matter what the position is. In a certain way, it shows that you are dedicated enough to 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 spend four years learning more and acquire something. So I get it from that perspective, but I I was fortunate enough that I didn't go to a four-year school. I just went to a, like a training program basically and learned how to do studio recording right. for bands. But as soon as I got out, I realized I was never going to get a job doing that. Yeah, And so I had to transition to other things and I got pretty lucky that I'm where I am with basically no real... Right. Education. Like I just learned things over time. Yeah. But there are so many people I know that that go to school forever and get a degree and then they can't use it. Yeah. They have to find out a different way to to um, make money. And that's that's the issue with, um, you know, I was telling you earlier, I have kids. I I have a son who's going to start high school next year and I don't know what to tell him to do. I honestly don't tell him he has to go to college i'm like you're gonna figure it out yeah if you want to go cool but if you don't i understand that too yeah that doesn't guarantee you anything anymore yeah so and the same so i mean there's five in my house we've got 26 right my daughter my oldest is 26 she's uh graduating also from psu um here this term It'll be our third time graduating together. Um, <laughs> we're very odd. But she's uh, in the GTEP program, which is the general education teacher program. Mm-hmm. And so she's going to be teaching, and she actually is doing teaching, her student teaching now. She teaches full-time over at Tigard High School. And she's teaching ninth grade. Y- you're required to have a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, only recently has that loosened for the pandemic. But realistically, in Oregon, you're required to have a master's degree. They're to f- teach? To teach high school. Huh. Correct. Uh, junior high and elementary? Yes. You have to have a master's Correct. to teach kids. Yes. Which that, I agree with. <laughs> I, I agree with that too, but they should pay teachers more. They should pay teachers and also they should honor the uh, promises that they make in your financial aid package of being able to get some of your loans forgiven. But they put up so many barriers to get that those loans forgiven that most of the time teachers don't end up qualifying, hmm. right? Things like the um, TEACH grant. The TEACH grant has so many stipulations to it. It's a grant that's provided for those who are going to go into teaching. So it's like an additional grant on top of your Pell grants and things like that. Um, And you can get a TEACH grant in a master's program. You can't get Pell grants in a master's program, by the way. Um, But yeah, your TEACH grant, if you don't meet all of their qualifications in the right time, all of that money turns into an unsubsidized loan. So then all of the interest back from the very moment you took it gets added to it. Mm. And it just basically becomes this huge uh, additional debt that you owe. So it's like when you do a balance transfer on your credit card and they give you 15 months and you don't do it in time. And then they're like, oh, right. Except you for, pay for that now. Yeah. Except for your credit cards. Like you can only you can only pay that off if you do it on Tuesdays in March. Right. <laughs> and only in this building over here. Yeah. And if you pay for it all in ones. Yeah. That's the teach grant. Mm. <laughs> it's that specific. Right. There's all these other conditions to it. Mm. So, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. Like, so it's a it's a really interesting cycle the way that things work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there's a lot of people, like I said, like myself, that are just out here trying to break these systems and figure out ways of doing things better. I truly believe that higher education is a really great tool. But like you, I don't think it's the only tool. It's not. And it sounds like I'm shitting on it, but I'm not. No, not I'm at saying all. that it should be an option for everyone and it should be reasonable. Exactly. If you go to Harvard or um, Columbia or some Ivy League school, I get if it costs an exorbitant amount of money. Right. You're kind of paying for the name. Right. But to just go to like a state school or something, it should not cost that much. It should be more about what you're actually learning and what you can provide to other people. But it doesn't seem like that's what the focus is. That's definitely not the focus. No. What's interesting is, um, so your Ivy League schools now are really getting on board with programs that are helping for people who are of lower income. So they're offering full rides. I know Harvard definitely has something where if you make um, under a certain amount of money or your parents, depending on your age, make in a particular amount of money, they don't charge you tuition. Yeah, but the majority of kids that get in Harvard have parents who donated thousands of dollars right. and they have their names on libraries and stuff like that, right? Well, so not necessarily. There, are, I don't know if, you, I'm sure you remember the Lori Laughlin thing, um, but there's, yes, yeah. <laughs> so that comes, stems from new um, rules and regulations that have been put in place over the last 10 years or so, wherein applications now when they're going to admittance committees are nameless. So I know PSU also adheres to that. Hmm. They're not seeing your personal information until after they're like, okay, this is a qualified person for this, you know, program. We want them in this program. So realistically, you're supposed to have an anonymous application to where you're judging it based on its qualification. That's interesting though, because if you only, I, I'm, I like the idea of not seeing someone's name and not seeing someone's picture. You just like see info on a piece of paper. But if you only accept the smartest, best people, mm -hmm. isn't that kind of bad too? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I mean, you're talking about private education versus public education, right? Um, it depends. It depends on what the expectations of those programs are. I will say this, going back to BARD initiative program from the College Behind Bars, um, the gentleman in that program did actually do a debate with Yale and won. They won a debate competition against hmm. uh, the team from Yale. So it's really interesting. Um, I think the idea of the smartest candidates or the best candidates are not necessarily based simply on book smart or what your grades were in high school, things like that. Many educational institutes are doing away with testing that is, uh, it's, you know, a lot of our tests, GRE, SAT, um, most of our high school tests, the equivalencies that we all took, right? So I remember I took the SATs and things like that. A lot of those are very skewed and they're very biased. And so a lot of institutions are doing away with those now. Hmm. They're not requiring that. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was kind of like the standard forever, right? Yeah, for a long time. And now they're, they're, that's what I'm saying. Like these systems are getting broken. They're just getting broken at a slower rate than what we would hope. And 
along with that, so that's part of like the group that I work with, the, especially the students that I work with that are coming out of incarceration or maybe have been affected by incarceration, right? Maybe they have a parent that's incarcerated and that's their only parent and that's how they grew up. And so it's been a harder road for them to try to navigate. How do I apply for FAFSA if my parents don't have taxes, right? Because they've been incarcerated for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things and barriers that are put in place, you know, just trying to get into college to begin with. And so that's a part of what that, I know for myself and my department, that's part of what PSU is working towards is trying to take down those barriers. And I know a lot of institutions are doing that, but it's a slow road. And like we were talking about before, there's always opposition, right? Mm -hmm. There's always going to be those one or two people who don't want to help, who don't want to see that happen because they're like, well, our institution is better if it's just the, you know, the best of the best, but what, what determines that best, right? Yeah. So that, that is the big question. Well, yeah, they need to adjust certain laws and figure out a different way of punishing people. And it seems like if, if they couldn't make money off of it, if the, the real concern was making people better and helping them out, it seems like there'd be more doctors in prisons uh, evaluating them and talking with them and offering programs like what you're doing so that people right. can, can learn and better themselves. It's just this terrible system where you screw up a couple times and you're just done. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of how our society has been built, um, specifically the United States. Not all countries are built in that format. Who's doing it right? Um, for me, I would say the Netherlands, a lot of uh, the Nordic countries, things like that, they have a better prison system, first of all, that realistically you can actually find them. There's some really great um, institutions that um, if you have something that happened and you, you know, you committed a crime and you go into one of their institutions, you're learning, you're, you're, there's help programs for you. If, you know, you need help with addiction issues, there are programs within their institutions for work, for training, for if you want to go into, you know, a culinary field or a mechanical field, or if you're looking for higher education, right? There's also, they have where you're closer to your family. Families can come and visit. You know, you have a better, cleaner environment. Their buildings are built with sustainability in mind. You have to remember, I don't know if, how many prisons you've ever seen, um, but they're not pretty. Mm -hmm. um, hey, I'm from Vegas. You could drive through Vegas, look at our schools, and that's what they look like. Um, there's no windows. There, you know, there's no um, warmth to it. There's, it's cold. There's concrete floors. There's, you know, hard surfaces. There's, it's not a happy environment. It's not an environment that promotes learning, changing, or restoring, you know, a human being in a way that helps them return back to their community. Mm -hmm. And the facts are, is that because we have so many institutions in our country and so many people that are in those institutions, it's over 90% of those people will be released. They will go back to their communities. So we're not talking about, like I said, you know, this tiny little percentage of people that are in prison for life is not huge. 
right? That may be that anomaly. And that's, you know, that is a thing. Mm -hmm. And we have to address that. But realistically, most people that are institutionalized in a prison system are going to go home at some point. And what they're going home to is going to make a difference of whether or not they're able to do something different, whether or not they're contributing back to their communities, right? And that's the big thing um, that we work towards is we're hoping to support each other in our student group um, in PSU Rebound that I, I work with on campus, which is our on-campus resource for students, Um we're working to help students have that support system. Because it's another, like there's all these layers, right? You've got a definite onion layer going on. Um, students who don't find community in college tend to drop out. So it doesn't matter what your community is, you want to find that community. You want to find other people who are able to go, hey, I've been where you are. Yeah. I know how you're feeling, but we can do this. Yeah, And that's our, that's our goal. So when you interact with these prison inmates, what is the general feeling that you get from them? So I don't interact with anyone who is... Oh, you don't? I don't. Um, my work is for people who have been released from incarceration. And I don't use the term inmate, just so that we know. Okay. What, what <laughs> term should I use? Um, someone who's experiencing incarceration. Okay. Um, we try not to use any kind of, and, and this is just really across the board for a whole lot of things. We're trying to break stigmatizing terms, right? Okay. Um, so I don't, most of the time I wouldn't use somebody as, I wouldn't identify a human as a felon okay. because a felony is a conviction. That's mm -hmm. not a person. Okay. Right. Um, I don't judge people on like the worst day of their life mm -hmm. as opposed to what they're doing overall in their life. So when someone when I have a student that comes to me and is, you know, hey, um, I want to start school. I was recently released and I've had we've had reference referrals coming from parole officers, mm -hmm. you know, in the community. I work with a couple of groups that are like, hey, this person is going to be supervised by us. Can we send them your information? And then the student will contact and they're like, I'm really interested in education. Right. Um, if we if they have a great parole officer, that parole officer says, OK, let's get you enrolled in education. Let's get you a part time job as opposed to a full time job. Right. Um, which a lot of times that's one of the requirements you have to be employed full-time. So that's a barrier to going back. And, and a lot of times people don't realize that they even have that option. So it's dependent on everyday one-on-one -on -one interactions. They have to have a full-time job to go to school? No. When you come out of an institution and you're on parole or probation, a lot of times one of those requirements through the courts is you have to have a full-time job, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're trying to go to school full time, I don't know if you've ever done school full time and worked no, full time. It's impossible. It is not a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's a lot. And then if you add things like a lot of people have children at home, right? So they come back, they've got kids now they're trying to reconnect with and they're trying to, you know, build those relationships or other family members or spouses. Um, and trying to do all of that at once makes education one of those things that's like, last option. I don't think I can do that. I don't have any support for that. And so that's what we're, we want to do is we want to provide that support and work closely with whoever it is that, the, that they're having to answer to, to go, this is an option for the person that you're supervising. We can help them get a, a job. You know, we have career services on campus. We have amazing resources on campus. It is one of the biggest things that I have found that I love about PSU. 
Um, you know, everybody has a complaint about whatever in life. You can always complain about, you know, your your college in some way. I definitely have some of mine. <laughs> I've been there long enough. Or you can, you know, you could complain about your job, right? There's always going to be something. But realistically, for me, PSU has been such an amazing community that I've built um, of other students who want to help each other out, other students who are looking to build that compassion, that empathy. Um, my area of focus in my master's program is conflict resolution, and my focus is restorative justice and restorative practices. Not shocking, I'm sure. Um, but with that, like, I'm able to share that with other groups that I'm involved in on campus, right? And then we have a thousand different resources. We have food resources, housing resources, career services, um, you know, just everything that somebody as a student walks onto that campus and has access to, right? And so, and then if we add that, a community to that, right? So we have so many cultural resource centers. Like if I'm a student who just moved here from Korea, there's an international student services, right? And I can make a connection and I can talk to a peer support specialist there who is also a student and who's been through that, right? So this is the same kind of thing. We're looking to have... um students who are a resource for other students who have had that experience and they are there to support and go, yes, this is an option. And if it means then I get to talk to a parole officer about that incoming student and go, this is an option. If it's, you know, if it's allowed through you. And again, a lot of times you have to remember it's an individual relationship. Some parole officers are not as good as others, <laughs> you know, some around here just, you know, wanting them to do exactly what's on that paper and not ever being willing to alter it. The same thing with judges. You know, we've had referrals from judges. So it just depends on who the person is. And I think once they see that there are systems and that these different, the difference that it makes with people, it's easier to create empathy so that then the bad and good narrative goes away. Yeah. It seems pretty crazy that a lot of what happens to you could depend on who is your judge or who your parole officer is. Yeah. But that's pretty significant. And it's across the board. Yeah. I mean, that's all the way from arrest to, you know, what happens to you then. If you have a judge, it's, it's up to a judge most of the time. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is that, like I said, a significant amount of convictions, the majority of them, are done through, you know, a plea bargain. Mm -hmm. So a deal is reached, the DA gets that win, right? And then the judge goes, okay, you've agreed to this. So here's the conditions and I'm now going to sentence you and people because they're afraid. And typically you thinking about who's affected by that, right? It's not the, it's not the kid that grew up in a wealthy household who has a, you know, very expensive lawyer who's going to be fighting no matter what, because they're going to get paid, right? And they're willing to go in and fight that DA. It's going to be the people who, you know, didn't grow up in that household of money, people of color, people who grew up in neighborhoods that were impoverished. Who who are the lawyers that are getting handed these cases that don't want them? Are they young? Are they inexperienced? A lot of times. Yeah, you're looking at your public defenders, and again, it's a pool of people. We're all people. So there's good public defenders. There's bad public defenders. There's brand new ones, right, that they may not 
know exactly what they're doing. And there's a DA over here who's going to run for office, you know, and he's like, oh, I can, this is a brand new public defender. I can just tell them, here's what we're going to do. And they're going to be like, okay, I'm going to, this is my first case. This is my second. You know what I mean? Like, it's just really easy. People manipulate people. And then this is a person's life here that's hanging in the balance, you know, and just like anything else, when you start going through something, it's just another case. Right. So when I was younger, I worked in um, the medical field and I worked in skilled nursing homes. And it's really easy in a situation of your work, right, where you come in and you go, this is here's Mary Smith. You know, this is her information. This is who she is on this piece of paper. But then once I do my part with Mary Smith, I don't have to think about her again. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's like this for you and I, right? So you and I sit down, we have a conversation, but three months from now, you don't really have to think about me again. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I am today's interview. Mm-hmm. And so that's our work. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing for people who are working in the justice system. That judge doesn't have to see you again, most likely. Well, and a lot of times they probably, they probably rationalize it and justify in their mind that they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And that's not always the case. But I mean, I don't think there's too many people who would consciously do the wrong thing right. on purpose. Correct. They do. They. I'm. I'm absolutely agree with you. I think that a lot of times people are like, "This is going to be your best option because if you go to trial, you know, you it could be so much worse." And they're right. It could. But why? Why could it be so much worse if? I could, you know, if I go to trial because I can't afford a good lawyer and I'm depending on a public defender who maybe hasn't been to trial, right? Because the DA has the entire, you know, justice system. What's the angle from the public defender, though? They're just trying to do their job. Yeah, but if they go to trial, they could potentially win. Potentially, but a lot of times they don't. But if they lose, they still lost by taking the plea deal. Right. Well, if they take a plea deal, that's still considered a win. Oh, it is. Yeah, because that's still them processing that through. The defendant has, you know, admitted to whatever it is. They have moved that system. How does a public defender get paid? Public defender gets paid from our tax dollars. No, no, no. I mean, but like, (laughs) do they get... So as a public defender, a lot of them will go on to then become private attorneys and, but I mean, if yeah. okay, so if you had a client and you said, hey, you should take the plea deal, mm-hmm. do you get paid more money then than no. if you went to court? No, not at all. So but I don't understand what their incentive is. I don't think it's an incentive situation. I think it's more of a, a lot of times public defenders are just really overworked and they've got a ton of cases. <laughs> They're and, like, we're going to lose anyway. Right. <laughs> just don't go to prison forever. <laughs> right. They're trying to do the best that they can for their client. Yeah. And realistically, they can only put in so many hours. Right. They can't be a public defender and have 120 cases and go to 120 trials. Mm. That's inhumane. <laughs> right. It's this, it. If I asked you to do 400 interviews today, you would look at me like I was insane, mm-hmm. right? How are you going to do that? There's not enough hours in the day, yeah. but that's okay because you're going to need to get it done. If you could just talk them into doing a 10-minute interview, maybe you can get some of them done, right? So just do that instead. So it's like it's like the post office. It just never stops. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. That's exhausting. <laughs> I kind of get it, though. If if I If something happened and I... If I looked at it objectively and I was like, there's a very good chance I will get convicted here. 
So I can either take five years. Right. Or I can risk it. I can roll the dice and get 25. I would take five. Right. And what if I told you that you can't afford a really great attorney who can sit with you for hours on end and who has a team of people who can go through every tiny scrap of evidence that might help you? You know, you can't call in expert witnesses because you don't have the money for that because that expert witnesses get paid. Hmm. Right. So I'm taking away all the tools that might be able to save you from that 25. Mm -hmm. That five starts looking a lot better. And then if I tell you and then if I, I say, hey, you know how you grew up in that in the trailer over there and everyone around you was doing some sort of illegal activity just to get by? You're not going to know any better. Yeah. You know how your uncle's already in prison? He's fine. He'll be out. You'll make it. Five years is a lot less, mm-hmm. right? You're 20. You'll get out. You'll still be 25. That's mm. not that bad. Yeah, but it just ruins everything. It does. But you don't think about that at the time. You know, it's scary. People are afraid. Mm-hmm. And so you take those those deals and you just... You live with what those consequences are. And unfortunately, most of the time you live with them for most of your life. So then what's the answer? Do they need to just remove mand- mandatory minimum sentences? Um, I mean, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah honestly, it, things should be judged on a case-by-case basis, right? Um, so what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is, is that there are, there's a... Honestly, if you think of this, not everyone has mandatory sentences, not every crime, not every state, not every county, right? Um, So we could take Brock Turner as a case, right? If there was a mandatory sentence, Brock Turner wouldn't have went to jail for six months. What did Brock Turner do for people Um, who don't know? Brock Turner was someone who was convicted of raping a woman Mm -hmm. in an alley who was passed out drunk. He was also a white male. He was in um, college. And he was an Olympic level, I believe, swimmer, if I'm correct. And his parents had money, right? And his parents had money. And his judge was an older white man. And he was convicted, but the judge got to determine his sentence because there's not a mandatory sentence from where they prosecuted. In the state? In that state. And so that judge said, you know, I think that if I send you to jail longer than six months, it will just do more harm to you. And so he got six months and... (laughs) <laughs> and then other states have mandatory sentences for that same crime, mm-hmm. you know, who will get longer. So, yeah, he just got lucky that he did it on a certain space of land. And he had money and a good attorney and yeah, a but, judge. I mean, if he would have done it in Oregon, Possib- maybe he yeah. would have went for five right. years. Right. Which I'm not saying is good or bad. I'm just saying that's so weird. There's 50 different rules. Right. It's very arbitrary state to state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're a large body of land with a large population and having an overarching, I mean, I'm, I definitely am not here to fix our, you know, entire state system and, uh, you know, our country system. But I mean, I, I get where it's difficult to maintain, you know, a federal system and then each individual state system under that. But yeah, there's just, there's got to be better ways. It's chaos. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is, but it really just makes you hope that you never do anything serious. You never get caught in the wrong situation because there are bad people who do bad things and they should figure out how to help them or punish them or whatever. But a lot of people just end up in the wrong spot or 
they were drunk or they were with somebody who had a gun or like whatever. It's that one wrong choice. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the thing, right? So for me, under my own um, education and, and the work that I do um, through restorative justice and restorative practices, um, that is the idea behind that. So just to kind of lay it out, restorative practices and restorative justice is not a new thing. It's not new at all. It is something that's been practiced for thousands of years by indigenous cultures and that has come back around in white cultures as a an possibility, right, to maybe we can change something within our systems. But it is really important to understand that indigenous cultures have been using these practices for a very long time. These don't belong, these types of um, way of reintegrating people back into a community is not new, but it's just something that because our systems are set up to be punitive, that people don't understand how to implement that, right? Without just either breaking the system completely or there's no integration of it because it feels like, okay, we're just going to give, you know, this person a slap on the wrist and we're going to say, it's okay, welcome back and everything's good, but that's not how it works. It is a very long process of accountability that the person who maybe made a mistake um, has to take for what happened and then atone for that mistake to the the, you know, the affected party. Um, and it's things that are being used. I will say that um, Oregon is really on the cusp of being a really big leader in restorative justice and work, um, especially within our juvenile systems. So they have in place in our juvenile systems, restorative justice um, programs that allow juvenile offenders to meet up with w the person that they've affected and come to an agreement and hmm. really come to an understanding of what happened. And so they learn how what they did affected that person. That person learns why why that even happened, right? <clears throat> why did this child break into my purse in my classroom as a teacher, right? And steal my credit card and make charges, right? Well, that's the thing I was just thinking about what you're saying all this is that it seems like the biggest issue is income inequality like yeah. you don't any white collar crimes don't they don't experience the same level of punitive uh justice Correct. it seems like it's primarily focused on poor people yes and when you have nothing to lose you do desperate stuff correct and so I don't know. It seems really simple. It just seems like if you gave everybody the opportunity to to um, make money and provide for their families, then it would be way different. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the funny thing about that is circling back around to education is a tool for that, right? Statistically, it is known that the more a population is educated the higher the wages are in that population, mm -hmm. the higher, it, the more ability that people have to support their families, their families are able to have housing, food security, health care, right? And then the crime goes down. Yeah. Like that's, it, it's, a these are facts. Yeah. And I don't know why <clears throat> you wouldn't want that. Even if you were super rich, why wouldn't you just want people... <laughs> you wouldn't have to worry about your your Bentley 
getting the window smashed or your your house getting broken into or whatever. Like, I don't get it. Like, why not just want people to be in a spot where they don't have to do things like that? Right. Because a lot of it is centered around money. Yeah. So socioeconomic status is the term that we use. And it is that um, where your standing is in your society economically and how it affects everything around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I agree. Um, you'd have to ask someone who's super rich why they would be opposed to that. Well, it reaches the <laughs> point, and I've talked about this a hundred times, it reaches the point of the French Revolution. Mm. You have enough wealth concentrated at the top mm-hmm. amongst a very few amount of people that is why things haven't happened in this country yet. There's right. not enough that have nothing to lose. Once that happens, everybody at top is in big trouble. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't really have a middle class. If you actually look up, you can look at the current standings for um, wealth and how it's distributed. We definitely have a top 1%, top 2%. And then it just... It's a drastic fall. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it in like a bar graph, there's no, it's not a nice steady thing. There is no metal class left. Well, and it takes money to make money. So it's way easier for for the the uber wealthy to make more money. Mm -hmm. Um, But. But what is their incentive to give that up? Well, I don't know that capitalism is a bad thing. Like, I think there are benefits to a merit-based society. Like, you have to work to get things. You can't just have stuff. It's not like everybody can just have... Not everybody can just have a $500,000 house and three cars in the driveway. But could they have a house and a car and food? Yes. And healthcare? Yes, they could. (laughs) These are things... If you want the additional stuff then perhaps there's more effort that needs to be come in. Yes. But we don't even have the basic stuff covered. I know. know. Yeah. And that's, that's the disconnect, but there. I mean, that is capitalism because capitalism capitalism doesn't stop with, oh, I've made the money that I need to secure for me and my next five generations. Right. Well, now it's time for me to give back. Nobody's doing that. Well, I, I mean, there are a few, I guess, that are trying, but they're not giving back in a sense of, you know, making an impact on society. I don't understand it because I'm not there. But I think when you reach that level, you don't care about money anymore. I think you care about power and right. you care about status and you care about stuff that you and I don't understand. <laughs> this is very true. So, I'm definitely not there, so I couldn't tell you, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it, it makes sense to you and I. We're like, yeah, you just help people out and then everything's better. But when you're at that level, you you don't care. You can just buy whatever you want. So you have to. Right. I guess it's that mindset of if I have, if I'm Elon Musk, right, as an example, and I have Elon Musk money, I can just build myself a little fort. Right. Mm -hmm. I can build someone a fort that I could pay people enough to where now they feel like they're doing really well and they'll take care of my little fort. Right. Mm -hmm. But everybody else, I don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because you really only care about the people that are around you, I guess, the people you interact with day to day. Right. I guess if you're not walking through the slums of Philadelphia, you don't really care. Right. 
Right. Well, and the thing is, is that I think people care. I think that they are just at a point where, like yourself, right, and myself, how, what can we do? How much can we do? And it's something that I struggle with even in this work, right? Even in bettering my life for myself, my family, and then working with other people who are trying to better their life, right? I still struggle on a daily basis of, you know, I can only do so much. Is it enough? Am I making enough of an impact? Like I think about that, but then you have to understand that if I can make an impact on, you know, 10 people's lives and then those 10 people have a better life and their children have a better life, right? Because of that impact, because they were able to do something to change the system for themselves. And then maybe they go into something and they make an impact. Like that's the way that I kind of keep going with it. That's how you get value out of your life. Right. But a lot of people don't feel that. They don't feel that um, ability to make an impact, right? Um, I know in other, before coming back into education even, for myself, lots of jobs didn't feel like I'm making an impact, right? Um, Having, we had talked earlier about my previous work, I, I owned an entertainment company and we did concerts and events and big things. But realistically, there, the reward of it wasn't there. It didn't do anything that changed people's lives in a way that I saw. I'm sure that there are lots of people's lives who get changed by music, by artists, by, right? And then by everybody who's working in that. But for me personally, I didn't ever feel that. So I didn't feel like it was contributing to helping people. And so that was the shift for me in making that change in my life and going back into school is that I felt like I needed to do something where I knew that I'm able to really contribute to make an impact. And then also I've had a really great opportunity, especially this past year. I've talked to our state senators. I've testified to them. Um, I recently talked to um, one of our Congress people at the federal level, you know, about student debt. Like I've had these wonderful opportunities. And a lot of that is because I'm really trying to work to get those opportunities and to spread the word of here's what we're doing help us, mm-hmm. right? Even our program is funded not through PSU. Our program is funded by private grants that the people in our program write. And that's where it kind of gets hairy too, because if you're relying on private money, then... Yeah, then you're constantly asking for it. PSU does this uh, interesting... This, so there's a foundation um, that... Every year they do what is called the Day of Giving, and it really lasts for longer than that. It's a few weeks long, but we have one like really hard day where we're kind of hitting the, you know, texting everyone you know, reaching out to all the people who support your work, whatever it is, and asking them to help contribute to your programs, right? Um, For me and the conversation that I recently had with our state senators that came to visit campus was... Why are, you know, when PSU lobbies every year to our state Senate for our funding, because it's a state school and a large chunk of our funding comes from the state. And we have to say, here's what we want it for. You know, we're just trying to stay afloat, Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to keep the lights on, trying to do whatever. Um, The other things that PSU offers for students aren't really under that umbrella. 
And so we're left over here as student workers, as, you know, resource departments, as staff members that are working in there going, we're going to find our funding somewhere, right? And we get a little from here and there within the institution, but a lot of it comes from things like PSU Day of Giving. We reach out. There are staff members. We have so many adjunct professors who are just amazing. They are using their spare time and they're writing grant proposals and they're asking, you know, for money for the programs to keep us going and being able to be there for the students. And so when I talked to our state senators a few weeks ago, that was one of my big issues and that I pointed out, you know, why are we not being funded from these state funds? Why isn't that being taken into account as opposed to just keeping our four-year college afloat for, you know, people who can afford a state school, which that's great. It should be an option, but we need to keep all these things going, right? We need to be able to afford housing. We need to be able to have um, students have food. You know, we have great resources on campus, but we shouldn't have to have five food banks on campus. Mm-hmm. Like that's crazy to me. Yeah. You know. Well, so if somebody could give you some sort of position within the state or within the school, what would you do? What would you create that you think would make the biggest benefit or the biggest change? Um, like, would you work for the state prison system? Would you keep working for PSU? So for me, I am actually starting. So I graduate this term from my master's program um, and I am starting an ed D program, which is a doctoral program. And I am going to I plan on staying working within higher education, doing a lot of what I'm doing now, creating programs, creating systems that are there to help students, creating curriculum revolved around restorative practices. I hope to at some point um, be able to teach teachers in training for the K through 12 system because it's a very punitive system as well. Um, K through 12 has become um, a situation where we no longer look for a solution for our students. Instead, we are calling, sending those students up and calling them, you know, to the dean's office or the principal's office, you know, and at sixth grade and they're suspended taken off of campus. They may go to a special school at some point if they, you know, do something. There's no restoration within even our school communities. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's where my area of focus is, is um, education and a better system of education. So I'd like to create curriculum or possibly teach teachers in training how to use restorative practices in their classroom. It's it's a really fascinating concept and it's not that difficult, but so you're saying start early rather yeah. than rather than fix y- the issue after it has already taken place. Right. Stop it before it happens. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's not an unheard of practice, right? To go into a classroom with your students at the beginning of the year and go, hey, welcome classes. Um, I'm your teacher. I would like to set up a system where you're comfortable and safe and happy and I'm comfortable and safe and happy. And if something happens along the way, how would you like to see, you know, that dealt with as opposed to what they see now, which is they know if something happens, they get into a fight you know, campus security is going to get called or campus, you know, police or whoever happens to be on that campus. And now our juvenile system gets involved and now they're fed into our prison system through the juvenile system from schools. 
it's just wild to me. You know, it's it's gone backwards as opposed to, you know, really solving a problem. So now we're just going much earlier. We're going in the community and setting people up to fail. We're going into those school systems and setting people up to fail. Why are our schools based on our property taxes as opposed to it being distributed equally? Yeah, that part's disappointing too. <laughs> There's a lot. Sorry. I'm just, we're going to have a good time where I just disappoint you all day. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I know, because th- based on what school system you can get your kid into, the houses in that area are much more expensive. So right. it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's all it's based on income. Yeah, You have a far better chance at being successful if your parents have money. Right. And that is unfortunate. But from the perspective of... of a parent who was the CEO of a company or something, I would want my kids to go to a good school. So I get it from that perspective too, but it doesn't benefit the system. If you have a bunch of privileged kids who do great stuff and then a bunch of kids in the ghetto who go to prison, right? That's not sustainable. Right. I mean, we're learning that it's, people know it. And the fear of change is there in our society. I mean, it's a hard thing. And it's a hard thing from the other end, right? So in restorative justice and in uh, restorative practices, it is not an easy thing to have something happen to you and have something done by somebody else that affects you, right? And then turn around and say, you know what? You made a mistake and I forgive you or I want you to be better. So I accept you back into my community. That is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. You know, and finding that empathy and teaching that empathy. Empathy is something that can be taught and it's not anymore, right? In our kids and it's not in our society. And we're very much an individualistic society here in the United States where we are about us and our little unit and let's protect it and let's take care of it. And that's understandable. But if you don't ever expand that out, then you're not taking into account how other people are living, how other people are being affected, how other people are experiencing life, and then what will come when they have those experiences, Mm -hmm. right? And that's really the big thing about making sure that we include space for people who are affected. You know, our incarceration system doesn't just affect the person who, you know, goes to prison for five, 10 years, a year, whatever it is, jail for 30 days, whatever their experience is, right? It's not affecting just them. It's affecting their families, their employers. Mm -hmm. When you start affecting all of that, right, you've got kids in school who are affected. So now their schooling is affected. Their ability to concentrate in a classroom, their ability to know that they're safe and secure is affected. Your employer is affected because, hey, John just got arrested and now we've got to replace him. You know, now I've got to spend money to find a new person. You know, I'm he's gone. I don't care about him. Right. As an employer, that's like that. Just that mindset. It's boggling to me Mm -hmm. that we don't feed back into our society. So it's really costing us more. And it's costing us more financially. It's costing us more emotionally as a society. We're just not extending out that empathy to go, wow, John, I'm really sorry that this happened. I'm sorry you got a DUI. It's going to cost you a good Mm -hmm. (laughs) $5,000 and many years of your life to deal with that. But as your employer, I'm here. So if you need to take time off for court, that's okay. You know what? You'll still have a job, John, 
And if you need help, we're going to get you help. Is this DUI, you know, um, affected because maybe you have a drinking problem? Maybe you don't. You know, not all DUIs are about drinking problems. Yeah. That's another issue, right? Like it's not all black and white. But if you don't have a support system that you can turn to when you make that mistake or something happens, then every single person around you is affected. And every single person that, you know, John's lost his job. He can't provide now for rent and things, you know. So his child is going to suffer. His spouse is going to suffer. Maybe if he has a spouse, you know, let's be real. A lot of us are not doing that anymore. <laughs> but like, realistically, everything is affected by that one moment. Mm -hmm. And if we aren't able to then go, okay, John, you made a mistake. And, and we see that. And there's a reason you made that mistake. And we understand that. And we're going to help you. And we're going to figure this out. And we're going to be your support system. I almost feel like it's an issue of scale. Yeah. Because when we were smaller and we were just groups of 100, 200, 300, 500 people, it doesn't seem like there were probably as many issues. I mean, I guess if somebody was like a total oddball, they'd just get ostracized and then a cheetah would eat them or something. But, <laughs> but now there's so many people... Yeah, we don't have enough cheetahs because they're dying off. So I'm sorry. We can't even use the cheetahs anymore. No. <laughs> We're destroying the planet and all the animals. So now we don't have that system either. It's just such a weird thing that for the most part, people are incapable of looking outside their bubble. They're like, I just got to focus on me and my job and my kids. Right. And I understand that. But also... Because we're in survival mode. We are in survival mode, but you have to, you have to help the less fortunate because in a selfish way, it helps you too. Yeah. It benefits everybody. Absolutely. It's so crazy. Yeah. I had in my undergrad, there's a professor at PSU um, who I don't mind naming. Um, his name is Dr. Marcus Sharp. And he is... Honestly, just a fantastic, I've taken every class that man's ever taught because um, <laughs> he's a fantastic teacher and he is real, very realistic with things. And I remember in undergrad, one of the things that really resonated and um, a very early class that I took with him was he did two things that he always did in his classes. And yeah, but I'm sure he still does. One was he told everyone um, at the beginning of classes, you know, when it was like that first couple of weeks when we would leave for, you know, at the end of the class period, he would say, remember when you go out and you're walking around, make eye contact. That's it. Just make eye contact with people walking past you. Smile. Mm -hmm. You don't have to talk to them. Make eye contact. Humanize the people around you. See them as human beings. I don't care who it is. I don't care what they're doing. If you see somebody else as a human being and you can make eye contact with them, it really changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And it's a psychological thing, you know, sure. and it changes how you act. It changes how they act. The, it just everything changes. And then the other thing that I used to love that he always did. And when you first were taking a class with him, you would hate it. Right. But then it, you start to get used to it and you're like, OK, this makes sense. We weren't allowed to sit in the same seat. <laughs> that's cool we weren't even allowed to sit with the same people mm -hmm. every class get up move somewhere else and talk to someone around you so yeah. if he walked into a silent classroom yeah you would know because he's like why aren't y'all talking yeah <laughs> like sit in a different seat in a you know in an auditorium classroom of 150 people sit somewhere else talk to someone else and learn something about them mm -hmm. 
That's cool. And it's just like the little things of that and the way that that snowballs, you know, and it, and it really does. And it's something I still do right now every day, just anywhere I'm at and can definitely drive people crazy because <laughs> now I've come to the point in my life where <laughs> everyone I meet is like really instantly wanting to tell me their life story. Yeah. I'm like, my partner's very cute because we'll go through, you know, to get coffee or something. He's like, why can't you just order coffee? Why? Why do we have to hear? We got to be somewhere. What are you doing? <laughs> Why do we have to hear this person's life story? I'm like, I don't know. They just wanted to talk. <laughs> they were nice to me. I was nice back. I can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. No, I think I think you're right. Most people have stuff that they want to get out. And so much of life is just interaction based. Yeah. And I mean, I'm guilty of it. I'll go to... Starbucks or Target or whatever. And I, if I don't really think about it, I forget that that's a person. Right. Like that's just the, per that's just the guy who's scanning the shirt that I'm going to buy at Target. And then I have to be like, that's a guy. He might have kids. He might have a car that he just wrecked. He might have a mom that's in the hospital. Right. Like if you don't think about that stuff, it's just like a, like an NPC, a non-player character it in is. a video game. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's a real person. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. I, I have to like think about it all the time. I'm yeah. Like, See, now today when you leave and you're out and about, you're gonna be like, oh, now she's gonna make me look at people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna be making eye contact with right. me. Like, that dude's weird. Yeah, right? That's okay. Smile when you do it. That's always helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe sure. not just a deadpan <laughs> eye contact, but yeah. I mean, it makes a difference. It's mm -hmm. funny. I've run into people, you know, in the last six, seven, eight years and I'll go through a drive through and you can hear in somebody's voice when they're just having a day yeah. and I will overly compensate and just be like, how are you doing? And you can tell, right, that I'm, I'm not just saying, oh, how are you doing? I'm like, how is your day going? What's going on? And I've, mm -hmm. I've seen that change in somebody's entire day happen. For sure. And when you see that, it becomes really addictive because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're like, oh, I can just be nice to someone for a second, change their whole day. For sure. And then they're different with every person they interact with mm -hmm. for the rest of that day. Yeah. I know I am. Mm -hmm. Somebody takes a minute and they're like, hey, you know, how are you doing? Are you okay? And I'm genuinely cares about that. It definitely changes my perspective. Yeah. 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 Cool. I think that's a good spot to end it. <laughs> oh, hey, excellent. So thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Thanks for having me.